All right, we are continuing our series today in the Psalms. We started last week. Uh, we're doing summer in the Psalms for a few weeks. And this morning I want to look at Psalm 95. So if you brought a Bible, pull it out. If not, grab one in front of you in the pew rack. We're going to be in Psalm 95. If you're using one of those pew rack Bibles, and Psalms is hard to find, it's kind of in the middle. Or you can just use the page number, 492. No one around you will know that you don't know where it is. You can just open and just act like you knew the whole time, right? Um, Proverbs, Psalms, Psalms, Proverbs, one of those. I don't know, right in there, 492. Open it up. Our subject this morning is worship. I want to talk about worship. I chose this particular passage because as I listened to Pastor Paul's message last week, which was fabulous on the fear of the Lord, he talked about living with this reverence and awe and respect for the God that we serve. I found myself thinking the natural response to that message is this message. The natural response to fear and awe and reverence of God is the worship of God. But then I started thinking back and I realized something else. I, as I looked back, I realized I often and almost always preach on worship whenever we're in the Psalms. And I started considering why that is. And I think it's because worship, I believe, is so central to a life following Jesus. In fact, I do not think we can truly become like Jesus and make him known in this world unless we are people of worship. Unless we take so seriously this subject and this calling to be people who worship the living God. And we're going to talk about that today. So Psalm 95, here we go. Let's, let's read it aloud together. We don't often do this, but today I, I'm going to make you exercise your muscles a little bit. We're going to read aloud. You can use the screen or the scripture is right in front of you. Psalm 95, let's read together. The first seven verses is what we'll read. Come. Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. This morning, I want us to consider four things. What worship is, what worship does, what worship challenges, and then how we can worship with confidence is what we're going to tackle today. So here we go. What worship is. To put it plainly, worship is the act of ascribing value to something in a way that it impacts your whole way of life. It's the act of ascribing value to something in a way that it impacts your whole way of life. It's saying this thing, this person or this thing is such a priority to me, it matters so much to me, it is so valuable to me, that my life begins to revolve around it. My priorities change because of it. To worship something is to say, this thing is worth so much to me that it now has the power 
to change my life. And some of you are already thinking, wow, there are a lot of things that I worship. And that's true. That's true. We'll talk about that. Uh, and this makes sense, by the way. This definition of worship makes sense because the word worship, we've talked about this before, comes from an old English phrase, worth shape. To be shaped by the worth of something. And here we see the psalmist reminding us that God is worth more than anything in this world. The psalmist is saying, let your worth be shaped by something that is worthy. He says, the Lord is the great God. He says, in his hand are the depths of the earth. Notice the singularity there. In his hand are the depths of the earth. He says, do you see the immensity and enormity of the earth? God holds it in one hand. He doesn't even need two hands to hold it all. He just holds it in one. It's how big he is. It's how majestic he is. And the mountain peaks belong to him. Next week, our family is going to Banff, Canada. How many have been to Banff? Never been there before, but I've been looking online. And next week... We are going to marvel at these mountains. We are going to stand in front of these mountains and we are going to be in awe of them. We are going to just enjoy them and be struck by their majestic beauty. But the psalmist says, as amazing as they are, they're just, they're just gods. They're just one little piece of his handiwork. Just one little thing. It's like, you know, that, oh, those old things, oh, that's nothing, right? The psalmist is saying, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. The psalmist says, look around at everything of amazing wonder and value, and remember that it all pales in comparison when we consider the immense worth of God. There are so many things that we find worth in, and they, they're so worthy that they begin to shape our lives. And the psalmist is saying, but nothing is as worthy, nothing is worth as much as God. So let his worth shape your life more than anything else. And the psalmist says not just one part of your life, not just your religious life. This is not a compartmentalized thing. God's worth is so great that our worship, our worship must engage every aspect of our lives. Check this out. Verses one and two, the psalmist talks about emotions, how we, how we should worship with emotions. Sing for joy. Shout aloud with thanksgiving. It's emotional language. Worship engages our emotions. Then in verse 6, we're called to worship with our wills. We submit our wills to God. Come, let us bow down. Let us kneel. This is language that says, God, you are in charge of my actions. I don't just surrender my emotions to you. I surrender my actions to you. I submit my will to your will. And then lastly, if you read a little farther down in verse 7, he calls us to hear his voice, to listen to his voice. It's the language of thinking and understanding. It's language of the mind. In other words, friends, worship is something that engages your mind and will and emotions. It hits every area of your life. This means something very significant, friends. This means that you can't just come to church and sing a song and get all emotional and feel all good without changing the way you think and the way you act 
If you just do the emotional thing, it's not really worship. You can't just believe. You can't just decide to believe some things with your mind. You can't just think things about God without engaging your emotions, without feeling differently, without acting differently. See, worship must impact every area, all of our lives. This is why Paul says your life is your act of worship. Everything about you, how you think, how you feel, what you do, all of you is impacted by worship, and and all of you is worship. Worship, Psalm 95 tells us, is the act of ascribing value to God in a way that it impacts your whole way of being. Not just how you act on Sunday, not just how you feel in the worship center, but how you think and how you feel and how you act throughout all of life. Let me give you two examples, one relational and one financial. Real worship, complete and full worship, lets God's worth shape your relationships. Even your relationship with your very hard-to-get-along-with neighbor. It changes the way you think about your neighbor. When you value God, when his worth is supreme in your life, it'll change the way you think about your neighbor. It'll change the way you feel about your neighbor. It'll change the way you choose to act and respond to your neighbor. You see, real worship will change the entire relationship. You won't just go through the motions and then talk bad about him behind his back. You won't just feel something towards him, but then never take action. It'll impact everything about the relationship. Here's the second example. It has to do with your resources. When God matters more to you, is more valuable to you than anything else in the world, it'll impact the way you think about your resources. You will start to think, you will start to imagine being able to use your resources, whatever they are, for the kingdom of God, to have kingdom impact in this world. And so, and then what you do with your relationship, with your resources, will shift. You'll think differently, but then you'll act differently. You'll actually implement. You will submit your will to God's will. And then the way you feel about what you're doing will change. This is why the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. Not like you're supposed to just put on a happy face and fake it. No. What, God, what's, what the scriptures are saying is God loves a cheerful giver because it shows that your worship has even gone down deep and impacted your emotions. You don't just think you should give. You don't just actually give. You actually love to give. Your heart's engaged because worship impacts all of you. That's worship, friends. God, giving God so much value and worth that every single aspect of our lives is transformed. So, that's what worship is. Here's what worship does. Here's what worship does. And and I'll I'll make a little distinction here that I believe we see in the scriptures. The Bible talks about a life of worship. Paul talks about this in Romans 8, where every part of our lives reflects God's great worth worth, um, to us. But the Bible also talks about the act of worship, where we intentionally declare together and remind ourselves that God is our highest value, that he is worth more than anything. So worship is just our entire lives, but it's also something we do. The scriptures say we engage in worship to fuel and promote lives of worship. 
We engage in worship to fuel and promote lives of worship. You know, one question I get often, and it comes in a lot of different forms. Maybe you get questions like this as well. Uh, maybe I get it more because I'm a pastor, and so people feel free to ask me these sorts of things. The question will sound different, but it goes something like this. Pastor Dave, tell me this. Christians believe all of these great things. There's all these wonderful things that, that Jesus said and taught, that Christians say they believe. But then a lot of Christians that I meet, a lot of Christians in my life, seem to be every bit as selfish and as messed up as everybody else. So they say they believe all this great stuff, but they don't look any different than all the other people in my neighborhood. In fact, sometimes they're even worse. And so why are so many Christian people not that different than anyone else in the world? That's the question. Because the Bible says when you follow Jesus, when you have the Holy Spirit in your life, you will be changed, you will be transformed, you will start to become a person of love and joy and peace and patience and grace and honesty and generosity and courage and humility and gentleness and self-control. And so why do so many Christians seem to woefully lack these things? And here's the answer. You and I, every single one of us, needs something to drive what we believe down into our lives. We need something to drive what we believe, what we read in the scriptures, down into our lives. Consider this example. You're an engineer. For some of you, this is not hard to imagine. You're an engineer, you're trying to make a road, but there's a giant boulder too big to move and it's blocking your path. So you're gonna use dynamite to break this giant boulder apart. Now if you just take that stick of dynamite and you put it against the side of this giant rock, it won't have much impact. I mean, it'll explode and it might break off a chunk or shear off part of the face, but it, it'll definitely make a lot of noise, but it won't really change that boulder. Too, too much. However, if you drill a hole down into the rock, and then you put the dynamite down into that hole, down into the center of that boulder, and then you light it, when that dynamite detonates, you are going to now get some impact. Now that dynamite is going to change some things. You see, friends, worship is like drilling a hole down into your life so the truth of God's word can get in there and have the impact that it longs to have. Worship is saying to the Holy Spirit, go deep down into my heart and life and do your work. This is why David begins this psalm by saying this, come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Come, let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with what? Music and song. Why? Why does the Bible time and time again implore us to worship with music and singing? We know this, friends, because music has this way of burrowing itself deep down into our hearts. Songs, as you all know, work their ways into our minds. And so sometimes we can't get them out of there even when we want to. 
You see, David is saying, drill a hole into your life so that the Holy Spirit and the truths of God's word can get in there and have a transforming impact. And the way you drill a hole into your life is you sing. You worship through song and music. Paul says it this way to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter five. He says, be filled with the Spirit. In other words, let the Spirit fill you up. Let it get down into your life. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. See, Paul says, Drill a hole, drill a hole deep into your life so that these things you believe can actually begin to change you and transform you and help you look different than everyone else in your neighborhood. Some of you, I just, can I just say this real quick? This is not in my notes, I'm just gonna say it. Some of you, you're drilling with like a, the smallest little drill bit I've ever seen. I mean, I watch you on Sunday and you're just standing there and you're not doing much. And you kind of look bored. I don't know if you're bored. Maybe you're thinking deeply. If you're thinking deeply, free pass, right? But I, I think it's like God wants to just bore a hole down into you so that he can get his truths inside of you. And he says, to do that, you need to sing. Sing and make music from your heart. That means with everything that you are. It's not just a time to gather and like, think, man, James looks cool today. I like his shoes. Oh, it's really cool. Joe the accordion guy. It's fun to watch him play the accordion. No. This is planting the truths of God's word into our hearts. That's why we gather. It's a big deal. Okay, here's the next question. What worship challenges? And here's why it's such a big deal. Because of what worship challenges? The answer to this question is right in this psalm. You might read over it, but it's in verse 3. It says, for the Lord is the great God. Take a look. The great king above all gods. See, here's the thing about the Bible. The Bible never asks this question. Are you a person who worships? No. Nope. See, the Bible knows this. Everybody worships. We all, every single one of us, has something that is of ultimate value and worth in our lives. Something that matters so much that it shapes us more than anything else. Every single person on this planet is a worshiping person. The Bible doesn't ask, do you worship? The Bible asks, what do you worship? Do you worship the great God or one of the other gods? Maybe for you, the God you're tempted to worship is success. You want to climb the corporate ladder. You want to make a name for yourself. You want to be somebody. And so that's what you value most. That's what your life revolves around. Or maybe it's your looks. Maybe you want everyone to think you're beautiful. Maybe it's your fitness, your physical body. Maybe it's money. Maybe the, the honest truth today is what makes you feel really and truly safe and secure in this world is a chunk of money that you've got in the bank. You sleep good at night because there's some money in there. Or maybe your highest value is some activity or hobby that you love or it's a relationship. Maybe there's a person whose affections or attention or approval is so immensely valuable to you that your entire world revolves around them. Maybe it's your house or car or stuff or your reputation, your status, your popularity. Maybe the truth is that the thing most valuable to you is what people think about you. 
Or maybe it's your kids or your grandkids. Maybe if you're really honest, they are worth more than anything else. David says, there are a lot of little gods out there trying to be the highest priority, the most important, the most valuable thing in your life. There's all these little gods, little g-gods. You know, and in the first Harry Potter book, and, and I know some of you don't like Harry Potter, it will be okay, I promise. I'm not endorsing it. I'm just saying it's a good illustration. In the first Harry Potter book, there's an object called the Mirror of Erised. And because this is a kid's book, it's not real complicated. Erised is actually what? The word desire spelled backwards. And what this mirror does is it shows the person who looks into it the deepest and most desperate desires of their heart. This is a terrifying thing. I never want to see this. <laughs> right? And so Harry, Harry whose family died when he was very young, he looks into the mirror and he sees himself with his family. You see, that's what Harry longs for more than anything. That's what he values. That's what's worth more to him than anything else in this world is just him being with his family. But then when he has his friend, his buddy Ron, come and look into the same mirror, Ron looks into that mirror, and he doesn't see Harry's family. Ron looks into the mirror, and what he sees is he sees himself as a sports champion. He sees himself as the most popular kid in school. You see, in the book, what the mirror does is it reveals our little G God most likely to challenge the capital G great God in our lives. That's what the mirror in that book reveals. So let me ask you, what might you see if you were to look into that mirror? What little g gods are challenging the great God for highest priority and value in your life? You see, here's what worship does. When we gather together in worship, Worship takes all those little gods and puts them in their place. Worship says, you little God, you might have value, you might have worth, you might have priority, but you sit underneath my highest value and priority, and that's the great God of heaven and earth. Get back in your place, kids. You are valuable to me, you are worth a lot to me, but not as valuable as God. You can just turn to your kids right now and say, get back in your place, kids. No, don't do that. The kids are gone anyway. Got any little gods whose worth is shaping your life too much? Here's what David would say, if that's the case. Sing Sing for joy to the Lord. Shout aloud to the rock of your salvation. Come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Worship, David says, and remind your heart who is of greatest value and worth to you. What does worship challenge? All the little G gods trying to have a big G in your life. All right, last but not least. How can we Worship with confidence. Verses 6 and 7. Come, David says, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. 
You see, what verse 7 tells us is that you can confidently let the worth of the Lord shape your life because God sees so much worth in you. He is your God, your maker. He loves you and cares about you. You can trust him to shape your life because he loves you and cares about you. All those other little g-gods, they don't care about you at all. I'm sorry. It's a hard truth. Well, maybe your kids do care about you a little. But ultimately, at the end of the day, all those little g-gods will disappoint you. When times get tough, when things go down in this world, they will leave you. They will abandon you. The scriptures say, God will never leave you or forsake you. You see, success, it doesn't care about you. Success doesn't care about you. It may, it may provide you some security, some safety, an emotional high for a season, but someday it will abandon you. You'll lose your job, the stock market will crash, or, or you'll just get too old and they'll say, it's time for you to go. And they'll remember you for a little while. But someday, no one will even know your name. You'll show back up at the office and you'll be like, who are all these people? And no one even knows who I am. Success doesn't care about you. Are you gonna make, let me ask you this question. Are you gonna make popularity or fame or acceptance by other people your God? your highest value, the thing that shapes you the most? Do you know how fickle people are? Think about movie stars who were like the most popular like five years ago, five minutes ago. Now they're nobodies. Who's that? You watch these shows on Netflix and you're like, I think that looks like Winona Ryder. Like, what happened to her? Or what about those activities you love to do? They're fun right now. Or your health, right? Do you not understand that all these things are going away? You will get old. Your body will fail you. We just visited my wife's grandmother in an assisted living place, and I just got a chance to meet all these people on her floor. These are people that at one time were young and vibrant and walking and driving around and maybe even running marathons. They've all got walkers. Someday we're all going to have a walker. Or accomplishment. Some of you have a goal or a dream, and then you're tempted to think that if you just get there, if you can just accomplish this thing, then, then you'll be somebody. Then you'll be satisfied forever. Then your life will matter and mean something. You know, we were with my family this last week, and my mom and dad are considering moving to a new house, and so they've been cleaning out the basement going through all these bins of stuff that my mom's kept. And so she's giving me all this stuff that I never wanted, but she saved for me. Um, but she did give me something this week that was pretty cool. She's, she handed me this picture, and it's the picture of my basketball team my senior year in high school. My senior year in high school, we won the state championship. It was the goal of my life. It was the thing that I valued more than anything else in this world. It was worth so much to me that my entire life, ask my wife, she knew me in high school, my entire life revolved around getting that medal that's hanging around my neck in that picture. And I did it. We did it. We, we started the season, we weren't even rated 
And we all season long just climbed the rankings and finally at the end of the year, we hit the tournament and we won the state championship in an overtime victory. The goal of my life was accomplished. And you know what? It was cool, it was neat, I'm glad it happened. But you know what I realized as soon as I got that medal? It wasn't gonna sustain me. It wasn't gonna satisfy me. It wasn't as fulfilling to my life. It wasn't worth as much as I thought it would be. In fact, what I realized is if my life is really just about this, it's going to be a pretty thin and disappointing life. In Harry Potter, Harry's mentor finds him, stumbles upon him, just sitting and looking into that mirror, just kind of enthralled with that mirror. And here's what Harry's mentor says to him. He says, we're going to hide this mirror we're going to hide this mirror. We're going to put it away forever because the trouble is people waste away before it. They waste away just sitting and looking at it. Here's the point, friends. A lot of people give themselves to the pursuit of a little G God, and it may satisfy for a while, but in the end, little G gods always abandon us. They always let us down. They don't care about us the way the Lord, our maker and shepherd, cares You can have confidence allowing the worth of God to shape your life because God sees so much worth in you. So much worth, in fact, that he sent his son to die on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins that you might be forgiven and redeemed and given life for all eternity. You see, if you make God your God... Your worth will be secure, not just for a little while, not just in this world, not just until you die, but forever, for all eternity. And so this morning, again, we come to these tables. We come to these tables to worship. We come to these tables to make this declaration to ourselves and to the world once again and to each other that our ultimate allegiance is to Him. We just say it again. God, I need to remember it again. Yes, I'll declare it again. God, you are worth more than anything else in this world. My allegiance is to you, to the one who loved me before I ever loved you. To the one whose love will never leave me or forsake me. You know, one thing about communion, here's this thing about the Lord's Supper. We're told to do this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's what Paul says. He says, you know, take the bread and the cup. And he says, before you take the bread and the cup, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and they drink from the cup. That's what the scriptures say. You ought to just stop. You ought to examine yourself. And a lot of people wonder, what is that all about? What am I doing? Do I have to confess every single sin? Do I have to make sure I'm like in a good place with God? Do I have to, what, do I, what do I have to do there? What am I doing? And I believe at least part of what we're being asked to do here is to consider again, are there any little gods challenging the God for the ultimate place in my life. Before you go and just kind of flippantly declare, God, you are the most important thing in my life, stop and consider, is that true? Is that true of me right now? Is anything or anyone challenging that in me? Stop and examine yourself. Examine your heart. Is there anything I'm giving value and worth to that needs to move over or step down or yield to the value and worth of my maker? So take a minute this morning. Get honest. Get honest about 
what you're tempted to worship these days. What has the highest value? What's getting the most priority? Time, attention. What is your life actually revolving around these days? What in your life is challenging God for the seat of God in your life? And if something emerges, God says, you just bring it with you, you just bring it with you to the table and you just confess it and you just say, God, yes. There's this little God, there's this little G God and he's, he's getting too big for his britches. And I need you to help me take care of him. I need you to put him in his place. And so I've come into this table to declare that you are more worthy than this thing, than this person, than this pursuit that I'm after. So you get clear on that. Then you come to the table when you're ready. And by eating the bread and drinking the cup, we will together make this declaration for us, for Cedar Mill Bible Church, we will say, the one whose body was broken and blood was shed for me, our ultimate allegiance is to him. May it be so. So take a minute, and when you're ready, the tables will be open. You can take the cup, and you can take the bread, and you can take it back to your seat, and then make that declaration whenever you're ready. I'm going to pray, and the worship team's going to come. Father, this morning... We confess to you that there are so many things in our lives that are taking priority and value away from you. Some of them are good things. Some of them are not good things. But we are giving too much focus and attention to some things in our lives. And we long for you to be back on top. We long for you to be back in that seat where you are more valued and worthy than anything else in this world. We need your help in that, Lord. Reveal to us, God. Show us the places where we're being pulled away. Show us the places where our allegiances are being compromised. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. May we be a community where we speak that truth into each other's lives. God, I ask for that kind of freedom here because we long to be a people who worship you. We want to drill the truths of following you deep into our lives that we may look different and be different, that we may stand out and shine for you in this world. That is our heart, that is our longing together. And so as we come to this table, Lord, to declare again that there is no one more worthy than you, we invite you to do your work in us. And all these things, Lord, we pray in the wonderful name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.